You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Sometimes I think I'm a pretty good communicator, but sometimes I'm just awful. It's really important to have good skills at communicating. I've done lots of kind of communicating. I've been a public speaker. I've been in sales. I've been an entrepreneur. I've been a stand-up comedian. And I've been a podcaster, but my biggest communications have been with writing. And you really always have to put yourself in the shoes of the other person. But fortunately, I just read an incredible book I highly recommend it called Super Communicators by my good friend Charles Duhigg. Uh, you've previously seen him on the podcast with Jay, what was the book? Bigger, Faster, Smarter, something like that. He's had a bunch of good books. And he has, he has a book called The Power of Habit. All of his books have been great, but this one just blew me away. I invited him on the podcast and I had a ton of questions for him. And here he is. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Yeah, I see in your bio you're at the New Yorker now instead of the New York Times. Yeah, yeah. So I left it. I left the Times in 2017, um, and with the intention of trying to figure out which magazine I was hope, hoping to go work with. And just really have enjoyed the New Yorker. Like I just, I love their, I love the magazine. I love their approach to journalism. So it's been a really happy place. Uh, I'm always curious, like how often do they expect you to write a column? Like, cause those columns are very meaty in the New Yorker. Like you must spend yeah, a lot, you can't do like yeah. one a day or even one a week. Right. Like you have to spend a lot of time. No, no. I usually spend about six months reporting and writing before something comes out. Um, so it kind of depends. I think for a lot of people where, uh, the the New Yorker is their main gig. They they have a certain number of words they have to pr they have to turn in by or get printed for each year. It's usually like fifty five thousand words or something like that. Because I have so many other things going on, I don't have to rely on the New Yorker quite as much as some of my colleagues. And so I'm I'm in this very nice position where I can kind of choose to write as often or as infrequently as I as I need to. Based particularly on like what's going on, you know that that week or that month. What other stuff do you have going on? Well, like writing, you know, like writing a book and promoting the book and giving speeches and stuff like that. Um, you know, just the rest of life that uh, yeah. that that ends up taking up time. And so I probably I, I I try and write about two to three articles per year, um, and then you know, I for the last. I, I had one earlier. I had one at the end of last year, but for the two years previous to that, I didn't. 
I didn't write anything at all because I was working on the book. Wow. So, so this book, Super Communicators, took uh, two or three years to write? Yeah, three years. Took three years for me to write Super Communicators. I don't know if I could... I don't know if I could spend, if I would be patient enough to spend that much time writing a book, but I guess that's why your books are so, you know, widely read. <laughs> I, well, I think, I think you have to enjoy the activity. Like I, like people often ask me if they should write a book and I, and I say, look, if you, if you enjoy writing, then you should write an article. And if you enjoy writing an article, then you should think about a book, but it only makes sense to write books if you really enjoy writing books. Well, well also if you, in, like you do a lot of, you talk to other people. So I, I, it's faster if you just wrote stories about yourself, for instance. That's true. That's true. That would, that would definitely, that would definitely go faster. I don't think I have enough stories about myself to fill up an entire book. So, so for me talking to other people makes it easier, but you're exactly right. Like, I think, I think there's a lot of different ways to, uh, to skin the cat there. Well, I bet you do have a lot of stories about yourself. For one thing, you know, you've written, so like, you know, you've researched all these things, like, like for smarter, faster, better, you want to become a smarter, faster, better human being. Did you become one? (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I think so. And I think in the in the course of writing super communicators, I mean, we so when I wrote The Power of Habit 10 years ago, um the the impetus was that I wanted to figure out like if I'm so smart and I'm so talented, why do I have such trouble, you know, getting myself to go exercise in the morning? And why is it so hard for me to like eat less and lose 10 pounds? And so I wanted to understand my own habits and and I wrote The Power of Habit to basically understand that. This book is very similar in that it's born in I had a couple of experiences where I felt like I did a bad job communicating, like consistently, right? Like at work, with my wife, with my kids. And I'm a professional communicator. I'm supposed to be good at this stuff. And the fact that I was bad at it meant that there was something, a problem I wanted to solve. And so that was the impetus of it. I get to call experts and ask them for their advice on how to be a better communicator. And they're willing to talk to me because I'm writing a book about it. After this whole experience, did your communications with your wife become better? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So there was this pattern that I had, um, which I think is pretty typical, where I would come home from work and I would ha- have had like, you know, a, a rough day and I would start complaining to my wife. I'd be like, my boss is a jerk and, you know, my colleagues don't appreciate me and blah, 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 whatever it is. And she very reasonably would respond by saying, look, why don't you take your boss out to lunch and get to know him a little bit better and that might help. And in- instead of hearing what she was saying, I would become even more upset. I would I would say like why don't you have my back on this? You know, you're supposed to be outraged on my behalf. Like like why 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 aren't you taking this seriously? And then because I was acting irrationally, she would become more upset. We basically we we both went in wanting to have a genuine conversation with each other and it would fall apart. And so that's the first thing I went and I asked researchers about. It's like what's going on here? And they said, okay, so here's the here's the basic thing you need to understand about what we've learned about conversations in the last decade. Because we've we've lived through this golden age of understanding conversation because of advances in computing and data analytics. You think of your discussion as being about one thing, but actually every single discussion is made up of multiple different kinds of conversation. And in general, almost all of those conversations fall into one of three buckets. There are practical conversations, which is, you know. I'm going to fix your problem, or let's make a plan, or let's talk about where we're going to go on vacation, what we're going to do about Jimmy's grades. There are emotional conversations where I tell you how I'm feeling, and I do not want you to solve the problem, right? I want you to to empathize or to share with me how you're feeling. And then there are social conversations, which are about how we relate to each other, how we believe that our pasts have shaped who we are today, how we 
how we deal with office dynamics and interpersonal dynamics and sort of society as a whole. And they said, look, what was the, the basic lesson here is if two people aren't having the same kind of conversation at the same time, then they will not connect. They're miscommunicating. So I'm just trying to understand, like with your wife then, she was trying to solve a problem, but you just wanted empathy. You wanted, you wanted That's to be exactly hugged. Right. I was having an emotional conversation and she was having a practical conversation. And so neither of us hurt each other. We completely were at, were at odds. Whereas now, when we start that discussion, my wife says, do you want me just to listen to you or do you want me to solve this problem with you? And I, of course, am like, oh, oh, thanks for asking. Like, I, I, I just want you to listen. Like, I, I need you to listen to what I'm saying. And, and in fact, they actually teach this technique in schools to teachers. They, they teach them that if a student comes up and they're upset or they got a problem, ask them, do you want to be helped? Do you want to be heard? Or do you want to be hugged? And those are the three kinds of conversations, practical, social, and emotional. And, and just knowing that has actually like revolutionized how me and my wife talk to each other. Because <laughs> now we know just to ask. Yeah, and do you feel it becomes more and more instinctive to as you practice these oh. different methods of conversation? Like, So what you're referring to is the matching principle in your book, which yeah. is that you have to sort of sense what type of conversation this is and then both kind of, in, not instinctively, but both agree in some way that this is the type of conversation we're going to have. Yeah, yeah, that I'm going to match you and I'm going to invite you to match me. It's totally instinctual because the truth is, communication is humans' superpower, right? The reason why homo sapiens have been so successful is because we can communicate. And it's because we can communicate so well, much more richly and deeply than, than any other species. And and so our brain is hardwired to have instincts around communication. So once you know what to look for in a conversation, you don't have to think about it that hard. It becomes instinctual. So yeah, it's absolutely instinctual for me to notice whether this is an emotional conversation or a practical or a social conversation. And, and now that people have heard it, if they practice it like literally like two or three times, it'll become instinctual for them too. There's a lot of concepts in the book. It's all very interesting. Like, Yes, there's these three buckets of conversation. But then I also really appreciated, like later on in the book, in, in social situations, you, you know, there's these 36 questions that you describe. And but then yeah. there's a way of taking each kind of question and making it deeper. So instead of me asking, like, just where do you live? I can then say, how do you feel about living there? Like, is is it like if you say I live in a suburb, right? I, I was thinking about this as I was reading. I could ask you. Oh, people always say suburbs suck, but do they really? What are some benefits, do you yeah. think, of living in the suburb? Oh, that's a great question, right? Because if I answer that question, I'm telling you so much about myself. I might say like, no, 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 they got it all wrong. Like suburbs are wonderful because I have such close friends there and it's great for my kids. I've just told you that that friendship is really important to me, that I have children, that my children's health is really important to me. Or if I said like, yeah, it's kind of soulless. Like I really want to move back into the city. I hate the suburb. You know, I like I like to be around, you know, art and I like to be around culture. Now I'm telling you something very different about myself, that my values are innovation. And even if it's a little gritty and hard, that I prioritize that. So you're that's a great deep question. And and a deep question, just for people who are listening, a deep question is simply something that asks someone to describe a little bit more their values, their beliefs, or their experiences. And oftentimes, as you just pointed out, a deep question doesn't seem deep, right? If you ask, what do you do for a living? And someone says, I'm a doctor. And you say, oh, 
Like, why'd you decide to go to medical school? Or, you know, did you, do you love being a doctor? Like, does it live up to what you're hoping for? Those are both easy questions, but they're both deep questions. Right. Because they're inviting me to tell you something about my past and my values and my beliefs. Let's say I want to be better at different types of conversation. What would you say? I mean, actually, I hate this question because it feels like a cliche. I'm just asking you to kind of (laughs) summarize your book without actually. uh, I would say from reading your book that the matching principle is important, but do you also want to control the matching principle a little bit? Like if I want to have an emotional conversation, but I also have a goal that I want to bond with you, do I figure out what kind of conversation you're having and then I match it? Or do I try to control in some way that you could go from a practical conversation to a emotional conversation? Yeah, it's a great question. And and it's important to recognize every discussion, every dialogue contains elements of all three conversations. So we might start emotional and then we'll move to practical together and then we'll move to social together and then we'll move back to emotional. So the key, what I think what you're asking is like, should I, should I force someone to match me or should I match them? And the truth is, it's a lot more organic that what you want to do is if somebody, if somebody clearly has something they want to say, they're emotional, they're feeling like worked up, it might be a good idea to match them initially and like give them that space to talk about their emotions, to share some of your own emotions, but then invite them to match you in a practical conversation. Say like, look, thank you so much for sharing with me how you feel. That makes a lot of sense. I'm wondering, like, do you think it'd be helpful to talk about solutions now? Like, should we, should we focus on like, like how to solve this problem? Or, or if you want to make it social to say to someone, thank you so much for sharing how you feel. I understand that you're upset. Tell me a little bit about how other people react to this. Like what happens, what happened at work when this issue came up? Right? Those are matching you and then I'm inviting you to match me. And it happens pretty organically in a conversation. Once we're on the same wavelength, we tend to move through the different kinds of conversations together. It's about establishing that wavelength at first that's really important. So it's almost like first you kind of tune into the same frequency and and then it's like you can, once you're able to do that, then you're able to more easily kind of change the frequency. That's exactly right. And in fact, we, we I love that you use frequency because one of the things that we know, and, and you know this from the book, is that when you're in dialogue, when you're communicating with someone and connecting with them, um, your eyes start dilating at the same rate, even though you don't notice it. Huh, your breath pardons start to match each other. Your heart rate starts to match each other. And most importantly, your brain waves start to match each other, right? That's communication is that I'm feeling a th- uh, an emotion or an idea or something, and I'm telling it to you so that you can feel some variation of the same thing. And as you feel that, our brains start to look alike. This is called neural entrainment in the, in the neuro literature. And neuro entrainment is communication. Like when we're communicating with each other and I describe being angry to you, you you feel a little angry. You know what it's like to feel angry. Your brain starts to look like my brain, and that's how we're connected. And so, and once we are connected, once we're on the same wavelength or the same frequency, then we can change frequencies together. And, and I'll follow you and you'll follow me. I 
I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours and they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash 
James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Let me ask you a question. One time I sold a company and the company that bought my company then fired some people. So an employee mm-hmm. called me up very upset at me because I had sold the company and now her friends had just been fired. And so she was very upset at me because as you know, she connected the logic maybe incorrectly that it was my fault. Although perhaps I was aware this was going to happen. Things happen when you sell companies. And she was very upset and I'm just, I want to ask you about my technique during this conversation. So I was, I was, you know, I acknowledged the feelings and I was, her feelings. And I was like, it's, it is very upsetting. And then, but then what I did was I did maybe like, it's called a, a pattern disrupt. I changed my tone completely. Like just very, like the volume went down and I was very like unemotional. And I said, just ha- let me just ask like, when was the person fired? Like then I just asked like a bunch of factual questions. Okay. There was, who was there to fire them? Okay. So it was someone from the new company. It wasn't me. I didn't fire the person. Like, but I changed the whole tone. I changed the, the, the pace at which questions were being answered. Like it became much more staccato, like back and forth. And I wonder, you know, doing some kind of like pattern disrupt like that is a good way to. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. If, if, I mean, I think if I might, Resay what I just heard you say and tell me if I'm getting this wrong. What you did is you basically kind of, you guys were having an emotional conversation and then you invited her to kind of match you in a more practical conversation. Like, yeah, it's like I understand the emotion. Yeah, I understand how you feel. I want to acknowledge that you're upset. You're upset with me. But, but now let's talk practicalities. Is this my fault? Like, was I, was I involved in this firing? And I think that by changing your tone of voice, and oftentimes we do this almost subconsciously, right? We do it, for instance, when we laugh or when we frown. By changing how you were talking with her, you were signaling to her, I'd like to move to a different kind of conversation. And you did it in a way that my guess is invited her to join you, right? If if she had called up and she was like, I'm so upset, you're such a jerk. And you said, well, okay, okay, okay. Let me ask you some questions. Like, Like, was it my fault? Did you see me there? It, it wouldn't have gone well, but instead what you did is you you allowed to, that emotional conversation to happen, and then you didn't like start attacking her. You invited her to join you in a more practical conversation, which is probably what you needed to have to, to really resolve this. Yeah, and it, it worked pretty well. And so I was just wondering if that fit into your, into your model, yeah, and it absolutely. sounds like it does. And, but, but I'll tell you pro- conversational problems I've had, which I haven't been able to solve, like and let me ask your advice on this. Like one time I was living with a real social group of people. And I really, I mean, li- living in a neighborhood where everybody was super social, everybody had a party all the time. It was like nonstop social extrovert heaven for extroverts. And <laughs> I wasn't very good at this. And so sometimes I'd just be standing around saying nothing. And I would try to talk like, hey, how was your work today? What'd you do at work? You know, but I guess I didn't go to the deeper level. Like, how'd you feel about what you did at work? And sometimes that can be awkward, right? Like, how'd you feel about work? Yeah. But um, let's say you're standing there and and you say like, hey, how was work today? And they're like, it was good. And you say something like, what was the best thing you did today? Or like, what, why, what do you like about your job? 
or you know, if I was thinking of becoming a lawyer like you are, what's the what's the thing you would tell me that would be most important for me to know? Like, should I become a lawyer? Like, those are all three deep questions that are super easy. And once you do that, you're standing there, you're kind of like a little bit more introverted, and you ask someone like, you know, do you like do you like being a lawyer? Is it is it are you glad you did it? They're going to talk. They're going to tell you some amazing things, right? Cuz you're basically showing that you're interested in them. Yeah, you know, you're right. Like that I didn't do that. Like I would say, how was work? And I maybe I would even say, "Oh, did you feel shitty about that or happy about that?" But I should have said something like, um, hey, my kids are one of my kids is thinking of being a lawyer. Uh, what should I w- would you recommend it? And whether they said no or yes, I can get stories out of that. Absolutely. Or and something else you could do, and I loved that you just brought this up, you could bring with some, up something about yourself and then invite them to to get deep because you've shared something a little bit vulnerable. In that case, it was my kids thinking of becoming a lawyer. That's not super duper vulnerable, but you could say something like, you know, like I, I I've had this job for 10 I've had I've I've been doing a podcast for nine years and I'm trying to figure out like, do I like doing it or do I not like doing it? Like like what do you, when you're as a lawyer like how do you figure out whether this is the right career for you yeah or like how did how do you determine like the success of your day uh, you know yeah. cuz i'd have a hard time figuring out if my day was successful or not you and i think that's a wonderful thing to say that's that's exposing a vulnerability and this is what we know about why deep questions are so powerful is deep questions are powerful because they give us an opportunity to expose a vulnerability. And then if the other person reciprocates that vulnerability, we feel really close to them. We feel trusting towards them. So if you say, like, I'm just wondering, as a lawyer, how do you define success in your day? Because, like, I don't know whether I'm successful or not. Like, I don't know what the definition I'm supposed to use as a podcaster for whether today was a success or not. That's kind of vulnerable, right? Like, you're sharing something. I mean, it's not like you're, like, telling me, you know, you're, about your dad or anything like that, but it's it's showing me a little bit of who you are. And if that person is like, yeah, you know, as a lawyer, I ask myself the same question. Some days, some days I feel totally unsuccessful. <laughs> now you guys are sharing something real with each other. Yeah. Okay. Let me take it one step. Let me make it even more difficult. Let's say I'm in a at a party and everybody in the room is talking about football, <laughs> and I don't know anything <laughs> about football. What do I just like sit that one out, or is there any? So it's totally fine to sit that one out. I will yeah. say one of the things that's really interesting about super communicators is they are much more comfortable just sitting there without participating. Mm. Like so we're all super communicators at sometimes, but like some people are consistent super communicators, right? They they do a much better job of connecting with other people. And if you observe them what you'll see is in situations where you and I would feel awkward if we weren't participating, they feel totally at, at home. They just sit on the couch and they listen to other people talk. And they they realize nobody's paying attention to them. Nobody's noticing that like that they're not saying anything. And then they wait for something to come up that they actually are interested in. Now, football is a great right. I don't watch football either. So I know nothing about football. But I do go to things where football is playing. And like oftentimes people are talking about football and I'm like, I'm like, hey, I don't know this game. Like, Tell me what I would be seeing on that screen if I was you instead of me. Oh yeah, that's good. Like how do often we, they love that, right? Right, because they what they love about anything when you love something, you understand the subtleties and the nuances, and you love to exactly. talk about that. Exactly, and it might be that like they don't want to have a conversation with you. Not everything has to be a conversation. Sometimes you can just like 
drink your beer and watch the screen until politics comes up or TV shows or something you are interested in. And then you can jump in. Yeah, that, it's, it's this is very useful. So, you know, you were you were talking in the book about this guy, Jim Lawler, who uh, was a CIA uh, recruiter. So he worked for the CIA yeah. and his job was to go to foreign countries and find out what other foreigners he could run into and get them to work for the CIA secretly. That's right. And, That's he, right. Su- and he sucked at it at first. He was terrible at it. The, so Lawler, thank you for bringing up this story because like, I love this story. Lawler like, was so desperate to be a CIA officer and he, he's like 30, he's 31 years old. He like finally got a job in the CIA. They send him over to Europe. He's terrible at this. He like literally like every single time he tries to recruit someone, they basically like either turn him down or or threaten to report him to the police and he might get deported. <laughs> and he's just terrible. Until one day, someone in his bureau says, hey, there's this woman coming to town who works for the foreign ministry of her home country back in the Middle East. And, and the Lawler never told me what country it was, but it's going to be pretty obvious. Yeah, I, and, I, I kind of figured it was pretty obvious yeah, when she started yeah, talking. Yeah, when, particularly in the was, time frame, also. Right, it's early 1980s, right? And this woman is coming from a place that just had a religious revolution, and you know the the Ayatollah has taken over. We we can guess what what country yeah. it was, but she works for the foreign ministry, and he, and they're like, look, she's coming to town. You should go try and recruit her. So. He bumps into her in a restaurant. He bumps, right? He 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 manages to bump into her in a restaurant. And actually, I have introduces- a question about that. Like, yeah. is it because he first did some spying to sort of see what her daily routine yeah. was? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He and some other folks in his bureau like would keep an eye on kind of where she was going. And so like he saw her go into this restaurant. She'd been in a couple of times, and it had like bar-like seating. So you could sit, so strangers would sit next to each other. And he like darts in and he sits next to her and he strikes up a conversation with her and he tells her that he's an oil speculator. And they develop this relationship and they're they're like, you know, he invites her to lunch the next day and they go sightseeing together and like they they become friends. And she keeps on telling him about like she, you know, she came to Europe because she was so upset about what's going on inside her country and she works for the government, but she wants to she wants to reform the government and you know they're not letting women study things in college and they're making them wear 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 the hijab and she's really upset and so eventually lawler says to her you know they have this private dinner and he says look like i care about the same things you care about about making your country better and i don't work for an oil company i work for the cia will you help us figure out how to improve things in your country and she starts shaking her head and crying and gripping the table and say no 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 and and she just she she just completely is overwhelmed she she tells him they kill people in my nation for this i cannot believe that you struck up a friendship with me without telling me your cia if my country ever knows that we went to dinner together they would arrest me and my family she just takes off immediately she she's so upset so lawler goes back and he tells his bosses who he had already told like, I've recruited this woman. He tells his bosses, like, nope, she didn't go for it. And his bosses are like, no, 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 you don't understand. We already told Washington, D.C. you recruited her. Like, like if you if you don't make this happen, you're going to get fired. Like, this is, this, is, this is your job, is to recruit this woman. So Lawler is freaking out at this point because he, he's going to get fired. And so he realizes he has one last chance with Fatima. He can take her to dinner one more time before she never returns his phone calls. And she's about to go back to her home country. 
She's been there for about a month. So they go to this restaurant, and Lawler has this notebook full of ideas on ways to recruit her. And they sit down for, for dinner, and she's like super glum, right? And he asks her why, and she says, you know, she's going home in a couple of days, and she thought that she would like figure some things out in Europe and things would get better, but she hasn't really figured anything out. And she's just really disappointed in herself. So Lawler tries to make her feel better. He tries to cheer her up. He starts telling her like stories about when they were, you know, sightseeing together, reminiscing, and none of it works. She's super glum. She stays glum. They get to dessert. And Lawler thinks to himself, like, should I make one last attempt to recruit this woman? And he he just decides, no, I like, nothing I say is going to make her, con- is going to convince her to take a suicidal risk. It's just, if I say something, she's just going to get up from the table and walk off. Like, I am terrible at this. I have failed. I just need to accept that. And so he sort of has this moment where he he's thinking that. And instead of trying to cheer up Fatima, and try, instead of trying to persuade her, he just decides to kind of match her and be really honest. And he's like, look, I... I understand how frustrated you are with yourself because I'm incredibly frustrated myself. Like, I'm so bad at this job. I wanted this job so bad. And like, I see other people who are good at this job and they seem to have something that I don't have. And like, I understand how how hard it is to disappoint yourself. And, and as he's saying this to her, she starts crying and he feels terrible, right? He like reaches over. He's like, I'm sorry. I did not mean to make you cry. Like, this is not my goal. I just you are honest with me, and so I want to be honest with you. And he starts patting her arm, and as he's doing so, she says, no, no, I can do this. This is important. And, and Lawler is like, she's so inexperienced and so overwhelmed. He's like, he's like, what? no, no, I don't want you to work for me. Like, it's fine. I, you don't need to work for me. Like, I, I don't want to put you in any danger. I don't want to put you in any risk. And she goes, no, no, I, I hear what you're saying about wanting that we both want the same thing for my country. And I think I can help you. The next day, she goes to a safe house to get training in covert communications and stuff like that. She becomes the best asset in the Middle East over the next 20 years. And when I asked Jim Lawler, like, why this happened, he was like, he said he he actually doesn't know why she changed her mind, except that during that conversation, during dessert, for the first time, instead of trying to manipulate her or persuade her, he just matched her. She was she was glum. She was upset. He was he wasn't matching her. He was trying to make her feel better. But right, instead so he, of he was like trying to solve things, and she needed yeah, to be hugged. She needed to be hugged. And so when he hugged her for the first time, she could really listen and trust him, and he could listen to her. And Jim Lawler actually went on to become one of the top recruiters in the CIA's history. He teaches other people how to do recruiting now. Well, you know. The cynical side of me says, okay, this is great. This is going to make my conversations better in lots of different situations. But there's a cynical side which says, are we really just, it's almost like we're computers that if someone puts the right programming in there, then I can elicit reactions. So like, let's say, okay, you say he was being honest, but let's say that was his technique. He's, I'm going to, okay, she's feeling, I'm going to match her. And then boom, I'm going to be, I'm going to recruit her this way now. And he could have basically used that, done the exact same thing, but did it more as a thought-out technique instead of just being, you know, quote-unquote, just being honest, and it would have elicited the same reaction. Well, it's interesting. So, so you're right. The communication 
tactics and tools and skills can be used to manipulate as, as much as connect. But what's interesting is that humans have this very finely tuned authenticity de- detector. So there was a study that was done where researchers would um, make audio recordings of friends laughing together over a joke and strangers laughing together pretending to be, to be laughing together. Oh my God, this is so and, great. I can't wait to hear they, what, what the it, result is. They would play one second clips, just one second of these different of people laughing, nothing except for laughter. And listeners could tell with 90% accuracy who were friends and who were strangers. The so reason not, why so is, not whether they were fake laughing. Could they tell yeah, whether they, they were could, fake laughing or yeah, not? Or they, they could tell whether it was fake. They could t- basically tell whether it was fake or whether it was real. Like, are these people really connecting or are they pretending to connect? And and that's based on one second of audio, totally decontextualized audio. If you think about how the hu- humans have evolved, we formed societies where we can't police everyone all the time, right? We can't make sure that everyone's honest. We can't make sure that no one's stealing. So what we do is that when somebody does something that feels like a betrayal, we overreact to us to it. If you're walking down the street and somebody kicks you by accident in the leg, it's not going to bug you that much. If they kick you in the leg on purpose, you're going to be furious, way more furious than the pain caused by the kick. It's because our ability to detect authenticity is very, very high. So maybe, you know, if you have one conversation with someone and they're so talented, maybe they can fool you. Maybe they can manipulate you with these tactics. But if you're talking about becoming a spy, you've spent three months getting to know this person. The risk you're going to take includes that you might be killed for it. If they're being inauthentic, you're going to notice, right? And that's what Lawler said. Lawler said, like, look, if I, in the future, when I tried to manipulate people, when I tried to recruit people without being completely authentic and honest with them, it just didn't work. Like the only way, we're not computers because the only inputs that actually we'll listen to are real inputs. If you try and make it into something that you're not feeling, maybe you'll get away with it in one conversation. But with your kids, like think about how well your kids know the difference between when you're really listening to them and when you're pretending to listen to them. It's true, but I think, I think there's, a, there's a gray area where you could do both. You could be, you could say to yourself, I'm going to honestly share my experiences because that will then get the response I need. <laughs> well, except that w- what's the response you need? So like, like you, 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 you talk to people all day long, right? For this podcast, like, I'm sure that you want to elicit something from the other person. You want them to be interesting or you want them to, do, to be open and emotional or you want them to be vulnerable and and i'm sure that you have little little skills that you use to draw that out but if you're phoning it in then it doesn't really work right no, like i i agree but like what i do is and so whether this is a technique or whether this is honest i would say it's a little bit of both i just become insanely curious so charles i have like an hour or so with you and you wrote, just wrote a book about a topic I am really fascinated about, which is communication. So anything I don't understand or anything, like you say something, and if I just have like, oh, that rubs me some way, like I can't, I can't let that go. I got to ask a question. That's an yeah. honest 
question. Yeah. Although I know I'm going to do that to have a fun podcast. So it, it, it doesn't it doesn't demean the authenticity of what you're doing simply because it serves a higher purpose, right? It, I, I think the example of this, if somebody spends their entire life pretending to be moral and they only do moral things, even if they don't believe it, even if they don't feel it, they're a moral person, right? When just because you're curious for a reason does not mean that your curious your curiosity is inauthentic. If anything, yeah. it's actually you being more honest with me, saying like, "Look, I'm really curious about what you're doing." And by the way, and in in the communication literature, this is known as a quiet negotiation. By the way, I'm asking you this because I'm hoping that other people will be interested in it too. That it makes for a good podcast. That doesn't make our conversation less meaningful. It makes it more meaningful. Now I know what you want out of the conversation. And I and and I believe you've been honest with me. You know, it's funny with the kids because parent-kid conversations are a great environment to test this out. Like the computer programming idea. Like, am I is, is my little kid a computer that I could like force a certain response? But but you're right, you still have to combine some authenticity. So I never, when they did something wrong when they were little, I would never get angry because you know when you get angry at somebody, they just, they tune you out. They, they, they just walk away yeah. or whatever. And, but I would say, someone told me to do this. So say, don't say you're angry, say you're disappointed in them. But it only really worked if I really did feel Was disappointed. disappointed. Yeah. So I had, but I would sometimes <laughs> have to produce, like sometimes I didn't care that much. So, so I'd have to produce in my brain that feeling of disappointment and then really, if I really was disappointed, they'd start crying if I said I was disappointed in them. <laughs> well, so I, what I hear you saying, and tell me if I'm getting this wrong, is that oftentimes when we're talking to someone else, we discover what we feel without, without realizing it, right? Like, like the fact that you had to tell your kids that you were disappointed meant that you had to figure out, like, are you actually disappointed? Look, if you weren't disappointed at all, you would not be able to generate any disappointment. Right. Right. And that, and that, that, as you're saying this, it's um, the memories are coming back. Like, that was pretty clear that sometimes I would say this and it wouldn't work if I didn't really feel it. Like, if their mom said, go talk to them, and I didn't really care, <laughs> then it wouldn't, nothing, we would all they, just end up laughing. Yeah. Like, a, like a six year old's BS detector is very, very high when it comes to their own parents, as anyone who has children can tell you. Yeah. It's very, very hard to pull one over on your own kids. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Let me ask you this. So with kids too, sometimes, and particularly, you know, from generation to generation, different generations disagree with each other about different topics. Like let's say a sensitive topic right now is this Israel Hamas situation. And it's yeah. very, very generational actually, because we see what's happening on college campuses and so on. And if you, you know, I've had this conversation several times now. If you really feel someone doesn't have the full information or they have misinformation. Of course, you always have to keep the option open that you might be wrong personally, 
but how do you really, and you talk about this in the book, but how do you personally navigate these hard conversations about very painful topics? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And there's, there's a whole chapter in the book about um, this group that, that uh, the gr- this group that brought together people who are for gun control and people who are gun rights advocates and brought them together not to try and get them to agree with each other and not to get them to even even find common ground just to see if they could have a civil conversation without screaming at each other and and it was a big success until it went online and the reason why it was a big, big success is because they taught people first of all a technique called looping for understanding that I can describe but more importantly they taught people that the goal of a conversation is not to convince the other person. Hmm. It is not to figure out what you have in common. The goal of a conversation is simply to understand what the other person is trying to tell you and speak in a way that they can understand you. If you've done that, the conversation has succeeded. So let's take the Israel-Hamas, right? You're, you're on campus and you're, you're talking to someone who's very different than you. If you say, my goal is to get you to admit that you know, Israel is terrible or that Gaza is terrible, you're probably not going to succeed. It doesn't matter how many facts you have at your disposal. It doesn't matter what evidence you have. They have their evidence. Like, like you came into this conversation already, already understanding what you believe. You're not looking to the other person to educate you. But if you come into that conversation and you say to them, look, I understand that Israel and Gaza is really important to you. I want to understand why it's important. Tell me tell me what you believe about this situation and why you believe it. And, and here's the deep question, tell me why it's important to you. Like, tell me of all the things that we could be talking about, this one seems to be really important to you. Explain to me why. Okay, so you ask that question. They answer the question, right? They tell you what their response is. Then we get to looping for understanding. So step one is you ask a question, which we we already did. Step two is once the person has finished answering the question, we repeat back to them in our own words what we just heard them say. So, oh, I what I hear you saying is that for you, this is a continuation of oppression that has always been aimed at, at brown and black bodies, and you are you don't like the fact that the United States, you feel ashamed that the United States is it. Or, or what I hear from you is you believe really deeply in Israel's right to exist and their right to defend themselves. And and you know, we have this precursor of the Holocaust showing how important that is. So you repeat back what you heard them say in your own words. And then step number three, and this is the one we usually forget, you ask if you got it right. Hmm. So what what does that what does that do? So let's say, let's say, um, okay, well, somebody says, okay, I, I acknowledge that October 7th happened. That was clearly done by evil people, but so is bombing children an evil thing. And then uh, let's say someone says that to me and I respond and say, so what I'm hearing you saying is that you really don't like the fact that children are getting killed and it's not, it's not their fault. And then what, what's the key thing there with, did I get that right? Because when you, when you ask if you got it right, you're showing them two things. Number one, you genuinely want to understand what they're trying to tell you, right? You're not, you're not, you're not just waiting your turn to respond. You're genuinely listening and you genuinely want to understand. And number two, it might be that they say, yeah, yeah, no, that's right. You get you get it. But they might also say, no, 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 no. It's not really about the kids. I mean, kids are part of it, but it's more about like even bigger injustices and and you know the systems that create injustice. And so now you understand a little bit better. And then because they feel listened to, because they believe you want to understand them, 
they, and again, this is hardwired into our brains. We can't help it. They are more likely to listen to you. So after repeating that back, maybe once or twice or three times, having that saying, did I get it right? Until they're like, yeah, I think you understand what I'm saying. Then you can say, can I tell you how I see this from my perspective? Like, would it be okay to share with you why I see this a little bit differently? Because I want you to understand where I'm coming from. And what's interesting there is, if you truly take out the element that you're trying to convince them, then I feel that can work. If you say, if you say, for instance, look, these teenage girls got raped that on October 7th. That could be any anybody we know, for instance. That's just so disturbing to me. I don't even know how to respond to it. And and then you just leave it at that. It, yeah, yeah. I think that like, and that's much more persuasive. Right, like, like it might be, and and inevitably, what's going to happen is that you guys are going to actually influence each other a little bit. Like, you're both going to agree that rape is terrible, that the Hamas terrorists were terrible, and 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 perhaps Hamas isn't Gaza, or maybe you know, you you get to a deeper conversation where you're finding places where you can understand things together. But if you just come in and you and we know this from study after study. Anti-vaxxers is a great example of this. The CDC, when the vaccines first started coming out and people didn't want to get the vaccine, the CDC was like, look, if we just educate them enough about the science, they'll get the shot. Like, we just need to tell them the facts. And doctors would go into these exam rooms and they would try that. And the people they were talking to were like, no, no, I know the facts. Like, I've done my own research. I've gone online and I've read all this stuff. That doctor's not going to convince them that they're wrong, that they're ignorant. Like trying to convince them of anything is is only going to alienate them. What's much better is this thing known as motivational interviewing, where I ask you why you believe that. I loop for understanding. I show you that I'm listening. And then I tell you why I believe what I believe. And inevitably, some of what we believe overlaps. And people say, like, look, I, I don't want to give my kids this shot because it's untested and I think it's dangerous. And as a doctor, I could say, nope, I got all the studies. It's not dangerous. Or I could say, I totally hear that. I hear that like that your children's safety is really important to you. The reason why the shot's important to me is because I see these kids come in and they're sick. And once they come in, there's nothing I can do for them. And so, so I just worry about their safety when they're, when they're unvaccinated. Hmm. Now we're talking about the same thing. We both care about our kids' safety. We both care about, about the health of, our, of kids. And and I'm not trying to convince you that my approach is right, and you're not trying to convince me. But now at least we're hearing each other, and you might say like, "Oh yeah, like I understand." In fact, what happens in about fifty percent of cases is that at the end of the conversation, that person says, "Okay, I'll go ahead and get the vaccine." So so they're so why are they convinced, but not the doctor? <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes the doctor is convinced, right? Sometimes the doctor, sometimes the doctor, the, the doctor says, you know, I understand why you don't want to get the vaccine, and and I agree from your perspective, like you shouldn't get the vaccine. That's okay. But, but like in what and when, if you're saying like in fifty percent of the time, their minds are changed, it almost seems like facts are stronger than emotions. Like ultimately, facts when people are on a common playing ground, all of a sudden, then facts win. Oh, yeah. No, facts become really powerful once we're at a place where we can listen to facts. Mm. <laughs> but the problem is that like, when we start a conversation in conflict, 
I don't want to listen to your facts and you don't want to listen to my facts. In fact, you don't even believe that my facts are facts and I don't think your facts are facts. So until we can until we can match each other, until we can achieve this neural entrainment and really really connect on some level, it doesn't matter what the facts are. We ignore them. And then you're right. Once we find something that where we can talk to each other, where we can connect, then facts actually matter because we're listening to them. You know, it reminds me of like whenever I've gone for marriage counseling, like in my past marriage or whatever, it always felt like BS to me because the a big technique among marriage counselors is, look, you're going to say something or she's going to say something. The other person's going to repeat exactly what they said. And then, like you just said, then ask, did I get this right? And then it's the other person's turn. And it just feels too much of like a technique when it's orchestrated like that, you know, with the counselor in the middle. And it never really worked for me. Although I guess like intuitively or instinctively it works when people are just having a conversation. Well, okay. So let me, let me ask this. First of all, I would say it, it sounds like going into those marriage therapy sessions, you weren't necessarily looking for a conversation that like, this is something you were willing to do because you're, your wife was asking for it, but it's not, it's not something you were necessarily enthusiastic. Is that fair? Yeah, or maybe I just wanted to be right all the time. <laughs> yeah, and, and look, we don't always, like, not everything has to be a conversation. Like, when I say to my kids, like, I want to talk about your room, I'm not actually looking for a conversation about their room. I'm looking for a polite way to tell them, you got to go clean up your room right now. Yeah. So, so let's set that aside, whether you actually want to have a conversation. Now, let's say the counselor had told you, Okay, don't repeat back what this person says. What I want you to do is I want you to listen to them. I want you to think about what they've said. And I want you to try and explain to me what you are hearing. Try and explain to me what you think they are trying to tell you. Mm. Like, that's actually a really restorative process, right? Because if your wife is, is saying, he's a jerk, he doesn't provide enough emotional support for me, if you say, okay, here's what I hear you saying. I hear you saying, when I do things that make sense to me, sometimes you see them as being insensitive. And I hear you saying that that hurts you. And that it feels cruel for me to hurt you that way when I can just be kinder. Did I get that right? At that point, she's going to feel listened to. And you actually might learn something about what's going on in your relationship that you didn't recognize. Yeah, that's... That's interesting. So you really, there's really a lot of self-awareness involved. Like you really have to know at a, at a second layer of thinking, what is my real goal here? Yeah. And you have to have the intelligence to be open to hearing something painful about yourself. Well, and can I just point out, you just looped for understanding me, right? You, you basically restated mm. what I just said in your own words. And so I feel listened to, and you feel like you actually understand me. And, and that wasn't too formalistic. That wasn't too awkward. The, right. Sometimes when we're, in a, when we're in a marriage therapy, I mean, look, marriage therapy is tough to begin with, right? It's not going to yeah. be like, it's not going to be a good time. It's regardless. not a party. <laughs> yeah. But I think what's important is that like, when we are a little bit more self-aware, when we just think, and it's just literally thinking half an inch deeper about a conversation, thinking half an inch deeper, noticing half an inch more what's going on in a dialogue makes you a super communicator. Super communicators, they don't have special powers. They're not born that way. It's literally just a set of skills any of us can learn. Do you think younger people have, have just as much ability to be a super communicator as older people? The reason I ask oh, is, yeah. it reminds me of 
uh, Arthur Brooks uh, books comparing, you know, fluid intelligence with crystallized intelligence, i.e. the intelligence of a younger person with the intelligence of an older person taking into account uh, their brain changes and so on. So I'm wondering if maybe older people are just naturally better. No, I think that oftentimes older people have a little bit more um, practice mm-hmm. and a little bit more experience. Um, but there's 10, there's, I mean, okay, when you're a kid, so sometimes I say the best way to identify who is a super communicator in your life is if you were having a really bad day, who would you call that you know would make you feel better? Like, does someone come to mind for you? Yeah. That like, do you, yeah, yeah, me too, right? We know immediately who we would call. That person is a super communicator for you. You're probably a super communicator for them. Now, if I asked you that same question when you were 11 instead of now, your answer might be different and it would be for different reasons, but you still knew super communicators when you were 11 years old. You knew the kids who like, were kind of effortlessly popular at school or who everyone just liked to talk to because they just they made you feel better about things. Like it's not it's not about how old we are. It's about it's about whether we've learned to think a little bit more about this. Now I will say most super communicators, people who are consistently super communicators, most of them if you ask them will tell you that they went through a period when they were really bad at communication when they were awkward as kids or their parents were getting a divorce and they were the one who had to be the mediator between them, they had to think a little bit more about communication because you know, their survival depended on it or their, their happiness depended on it. So, so yeah, we can all be super communicators. It's just a question of, do we want to spend that time and energy to, to get there? Well, and this is related actually. So online... You've mentioned that a, a couple times in the book that a lot these conversations are happening in person and online results are different. Is it because online that authenticity antenna doesn't really work? So I think what it is, so I mentioned the, the chapter about um, the gun control conversation, right? And so all these people went, they, there was 100 people, 50% gun, gun control, 50% gun rights. They teach them looping for understanding and a couple of other techniques. They have a great weekend. Everyone basically, nobody changes each other's mind, but they walk away saying like, we really connected, we understand the other side. Then they set up a Facebook group for all these folks and a couple of additional folks. And within 45 minutes, people were calling each other jackbooted Nazis online, right? Like it all fell apart once they went online. And I think what was going on there, and this is what research shows us, is that we often assume that communicating one way is the same as communicating always, right? Now, we've actually learned to intuit some differences. When phones were invented about 100 or became popular about 100 years ago, there were all these articles about how no one will ever be able to have a real conversation on the telephone, that they'll just use it for like sending stock orders or grocery lists. And they were right at the time. If you listen to how people talked on the telephone, they didn't know how to talk to each other. It was really hard for them to have conversations. But by the time you and I become teenagers, we can talk on the phone for like six hours a night, right? Like we learned, and in fact, what we know is if you are talking on the telephone versus face-to-face without realizing it, you will over-enunciate your words on the phone. Hmm. If, If we can see each other like we can on this video call, if we turned off our cameras right now, our vocal variety would become higher as we're putting more emotions into our voice because we can't see each other. And put differently, we have learned different communication techniques for different channels. 
Now, we've been talking on the phones for over 100 years. We've been talking face-to-face for millennia. Most people got their first email address in like 1997. Right? Like we've we've right. been talking online. When it comes to like texting, texting versus via emojis, that's like seven years ago that started. So I think what happens when people make a mistake about online is it's that they assume that I can talk to you online the same way that I can talk to you face to face. But if you can hear my voice, you understand when I'm being sarcastic. But if I send you a sarcastic email, you can't hear the sarcasm. You think I'm being serious. I I so part of it is kind of like. The, the things you're missing in text, which is the sound and the volume and, you know, the tone and so on. But I wonder also if there's just like this neural, what did you call it? Entrailment or? Uh, entrainment? Yeah. Entrainment. It, this neural entrainment doesn't happen because our brains are simply not next to each other. Well, so so you and I are neurally entrained right now, right? And, and we're separated. I'm in California. You're in New York. There's a lot of distance between us. It's not so much the distance that creates the entrainment. It's whether we have agreed on the same set of rules for this conversation. Mm. So, so think about like when we're texting someone, we know that the rule is you can be very short and brusque in a text, and that doesn't mean anything. But if I'm short and brusque in an email, you might read it differently. And if I called you up and I was like, James, and I said, James, I'm going to see you at five. Okay, later. Bop and hung up the phone, you're going to be like, why is Charles so pissed at me? What's going on here? Right. It's because we've agreed on a set of rules for texting and a, a, a set of rules for email and a set of rules for, for you know, phone conversations. And, and when we forget those rules or we ignore those rules, that's when we fail to connect. But it doesn't matter if we're next to each other. It doesn't matter what type. We can entrain just as easily as long as we're in sync on what rules of communication we're using. I see. So... If what if you're t- if you're online and you're right, like pe- people say things online that they wouldn't say person to person. And if everybody just agreed, like think first, would you say this person to person? If if you wouldn't, then don't text it. Then the rules are a little closer. We were a little closer to understanding what what the rules are, and maybe that then you know entrainment happens a little more easily. Yeah, or it might go the other way, where it's where I say. Okay, so when you're online, it's okay for you to be brusque in a way that you wouldn't be. And I'm not going to get offended by that because I understand in mm. texts we're actually brusque with each other. The the key is just again, this is the matching principle that like we need to be having the same kind of conversation at the same time. It's not just about emotional, social and and practical. It's also have we engaged in this, you know, quiet negotiation to figure out what the rules are for this dialogue? And then do we both abide by them? And the book is is all or mostly about one-to-one conversations. Like, you know, high, like in some sense, most of it's like uh, high uh, impact, you know, it's husband and wife, colleagues at work, difficult conversations or recruiting someone as a spy. There is there is also <laughs> the the whole social thing, which too, which, which is the part I really needed the most. But- there's also another aspect of conversation, one to many. So if you're giving a talk or you're performing a comedy or something like that, if you're giving a talk, that's one to many. How, how would you use these principles in one to many? Sure. So, so the first question is, is that a conversation? Like, do you want to have a conversation with the audience? Or, or do you want to just tell the audience what you're thinking and feeling and let, it, let them absorb it? Well, okay. You my, sh- my, my theory ahead. there is that 
the best public talks are feel like conversations. That's exactly right. And we're seeing that right now on the campaign trail, right? There's there's one candidate in particular who like seems to to take an entire room of people and make them feel like they're having a conversation with him. Um it, and it and it feels organic and natural for the people in that room. So so what's going on there? Well, oftentimes it's the same basic principle just kind of writ large, right? If I'm feeling something, if I'm feeling an emotion, I'm going to show that emotion. So I say, I am angry. I'm angry that this is happening. You know, there. I'm angry that, you know, whatever the issue is, stick in your little, the issue of the day. Or if I'm saying, okay, and now, now I know you're angry too. Tell me that you're angry and the crowd roars back, right? And then at some point I say, but being angry isn't enough. We need to actually go and try and solve this problem. And the way you solve the problem is by showing up at the polls on on election day and voting for me. Now we've moved on to a practical conversation. I want you to go tell your neighbor about this idea. I want you to tell your neighbor how important this is. Now that's a social conversation, right? And if it's good, the audience is saying it back to you. The audience is looping for understanding. They're telling you, I want to go vote. I'm going to go talk to my neighbor. Oftentimes you hear politicians say things like, promise me you'll go talk to a neighbor tomorrow. And people stand up and they shout, I promise, I promise. It's funny it how it cycles through all the three types of conversation. The, you know, the the practical slash facts, the, uh, you know, are we all feeling, you know, the same way and, and helping each other, you know, agreeing that we feel the same way and then uh, social. Yeah. And, and that happens in almost every conversation. What you'll notice is that in every meaningful conversation or every sort of sustained conversation, all three kinds of conversations come up. I wonder, is there a fourth thing there? Also, there's a call to action, which is vote. Yeah. So I in, think in that I, case, I, in that example. I, I yeah, I think that, that very explicitly in that example, and I think that's a little practical, right? That usually falls into the sort of the practical con- conversation, like, mm. like how do we how do we make a plan? Like how do we turn this feeling into a plan of action? But you're exactly right. And it's not like it's not like there's no other forms of conversation. These are the buckets that many different kinds of conversations fall into. But then there's sometimes when like <laughs> if I go to a movie and like I'm watching a movie next to my kid and we're just like whispering like things we observe to each other. You know, that's a conversation, but maybe it's not emotional or practical or social. Maybe it's just us sharing with each other. But for the most meaningful conversations, the ones that actually matter the most, then you find these three elements, the practical, the emotional, and the social. What, what's interesting to me as a podcaster, like both of us have been podcast hosts and podcast guests. Yeah. And, you know, it, and it's interesting because so I've been on a lot of podcasts and I see the poor podcast hosts, it's like they have their questions in advance and they stick to them and you and they're just going from one to the next. And I don't want to say they're bad podcasters. Maybe they're nervous or they're just learning. But those, I I really get annoyed. And they're not like real conversations. I think it works for podcasts too. Like the best podcasts are just conversations. Like I try yeah. to imagine you and I are just, we haven't spoken in years. We're just calling each other up to update. And then that's the podcast. <laughs> and and I think the reason why that approach works is because it feels like you're listening to me. Whereas if you ask a question, I give you an answer, and then you just move on to the next question on your list, you're not really listening. 
Like right. you're not trying to connect with me. You've basically got a list of questions you want to get through. And think about how frequently that happens face to face, right? I, I'm saying something and I feel like instead of listening to me, you're just waiting your turn to speak. That's mm. not a conversation where we feel connected to each other. But when you when you as you're very talented at this, when you say, like, look, you know, I think what you're saying is, or or here's what I'm hearing, or or let me show you that I'm listening, then it makes me want to listen to you and do the same thing back. Well, the the best example in your book was uh, one of the first stories in the book, the Felix, forgot his yeah. last name, the FBI S- negotiator. Sagala. Yeah, and I loved that story. Like, basically, it was almost like this magic trick that he did. It's totally, and what's amazing about, about Felix Sagala is it's totally a magic trick. This is like, if this guy walked into a room, there is no way you would think he was a super communicator. He's like pudgy. He's got like a, like a, like a Ted Lasso, like a, like a, substitute teacher mustache. His voice is kind of nasal and reedy. He actually, as a kid, was really, really shy. Um, and his father was a con man, right? Like, like he was a, sh- or no, his grandfather. His grandfather was a con man. He was totally ashamed of like, like how he had grown up. And because he thought had to think about communication, he got really good at it. And one of the things he does that's really powerful is he, he uses laughter. And we know this about super communicators. Super communicators tend to ask 10 to 20 times as many questions as other people, right? Just a huge number of questions. Most of them we don't even register because they're questions like, hey, what would you think about that? Or like, what happened next? Super communicators tend to laugh more, but they're not laughing in response to anything funny. They're laughing to show you that they want to connect with you. And then our natural instinct is to laugh back, and we're showing them that we want to connect back. And will that laughter register as authentic laughter on that other study that you mentioned? Yeah, I I mean, I mean yeah, yeah, like if if if, <laughs> if I tell you a joke and you kind of, or not even a joke. If I just if you say something and I go, <laughs> "Yeah, no, I totally understand." It's you're not going to think that I'm like uproariously entertained by you, right? But the laugh seems like it's an acknowledgement that it's an acknowledgement okay. that you just said something. Yeah. It's an acknowledgement that you said something. It, it is authentic. You know, with with AI out there now and wearables a thing, like what if I, just on my smartwatch, it keeps track of everyone I'm t- who I'm talking to. And then when I get home, I look at the watch and say, okay, this guy was authentic. This guy wasn't authentic. Like yeah. all this stuff could be made right now. The technology's there. That's kind of what NASA did, right? When they were when NASA was looking for astronauts, they needed to figure out a way to tell the difference between people who were emotionally intelligent and people who could fake being emotionally intelligent really, really well, but probably were going to crack when you're like in space for six months at a time mm. and you're living next to someone. And one of the ways that they found to do that was to pay attention to basically record how people laughed. When the interviewer would walk in, the interviewer would do something like drop all their papers or make some joke and laugh really, really loud, like bigger than, than you would expect. And then they would pay close attention to whether the applicant matched that laughter or whether they just gave a polite chuckle. And that helped them know who actually wanted to connect with other people. So you're absolutely right. We could work that into our technology and figure it out. Now, the better thing is just to actually just pay a little bit of attention, right? <laughs> like, like if 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 you were asking me, if you were being inauthentic, if you were just going down your list of questions, I don't need a, a watch to tell me you're doing that. I pick up on it pretty quickly. 
from their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. So what's the point of the research, you think? Is the point really just to say this definitely happens, even though... And, and, and I'm asking specifically about a research study you mentioned in, in the book. So there's a chapter on negotiation or a section on negotiation, and you talk about uh, three Harvard professors, uh, William Murray, uh, I've actually spoken at a TED Talk right after he spoke. Uh, he's one of the professors. And they wrote this book, Getting to Yes. And what struck me in that study was... They, uh, one of the guys had been involved in real negotiations, like releasing the hostages in Iran and, uh, you know, the Camp David Accords and, and so on. So in the real world, he says this happens, but then they did a study to show that this happens. So I wonder sometimes what's actually research and what's, what we just kind of know this stuff anyway. Well, so I, I do think we all have an instinct on how to communicate, right? This is, communication is human superpower and we all, we all have evolved to communicate. That being said, sometimes we don't listen to our instincts. Sometimes we don't understand how to listen to our instincts. Also, sometimes it's easier for those instincts to thrive when we have skills that we can use. Mm. So are the skills that I'm describing and that William Murray describes, are they, are they manufactured skills that nobody knew existed? No. They, like Everyone hearing looping for understanding knows that this is something that's effective. But sometimes you need someone to tell you, Look, there's a system for this. There's a process. Like instead of letting it happen happenstance, just do these three steps and keep these three steps in mind. And then, uh, and then you know, a couple of weeks later, it's automatic. It's subconscious. You do it without even thinking about it. So I think you're right that part of what's interesting about communications research is that it tends to reveal things to us that as soon as we hear them, we say, "Oh, of course that's true." Like I, I knew that without knowing it. But until someone points it out to us, until someone teaches us how to do it, that knowledge, that knowledge isn't usable. I see. So it's like, what, even though you might instinctively know it, or even though you might suspect it, that the fact that you know somebody did a study and shows that ninety-nine out of hundred times this happens, now you can kind of confidently say, okay. I knew that worked anyway, but now I don't have to think about it. Like it just, it works. I'm going to think about the things that are hard for me, but I know like the, that study in particular showed that negotiation is not a zero sum game where one person wins, the other person loses, but that both sides could win. And that I think is instinctively understood by negotiators. But I think if they, maybe what you're saying is if they know it in scientific research, they could relax on that part, knowing that it works and then move on to more difficult parts for them. Well, and think about how how easy it is to to get into a mindset where I say my goal in this conversation is to convince you that I'm right. Like if I can just give you the facts that I know, you're going to agree with me. Right? And if somebody says to you, "Look, look, it's not going to work." Like I understand why you think that, but research shows it's not going to work. Your goal in this conversation should just be to understand each other. And that's and and if one of you changes your mind, that's the thing that's going to get you there. Like both, like I understand why that instinct exists to try and just prove to the other person that I'm right and they're wrong. 
But it also is instinctually true that when I tell you it's not going to work, you know that, that I'm being right. And I guess also, the, like, take the hard uh, conversations as an example. The more emotional you are in a conversation or the more a conversation triggers some emotions, maybe you forget these instinctive rules that you know most of the other times. And you have to be reminded That's because exactly you say true. this study happened, so I know I shouldn't be angry or try to force feed my opinion or whatever. Or just anxious, right? Think about like how frequently we go into a conversation and we just feel kind of anxious about it. it there That's was a every conversation that was done. I ever have. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> so there was a study that was done by um, a woman named Allison Wood Brooks at Harvard Business School where she had people write down three topics they could discuss before they started having a discussion with a stranger. And so it took like seven to 10 seconds. People would write down like, you know, last night's TV show and the, the football game this weekend, little dumb stuff. And they'd put it in their back pocket. And what they found is that those conversations went much, much better after people had done that. Not because they discussed what they had written down. Most people didn't ever discuss what they had mm -hmm. written down. But feeling like you had something to fall back on made them less anxious. So oftentimes, part of teaching these skills is to say to you, you don't need to be anxious going into this conversation because you can always ask a deep question. Like you have something to fall back on. And and if you're in a if you're in a conflict situation, if you're arguing with someone and like you're feeling overwhelmed, just loop for understanding. Just repeat back what you heard and ask if you got it right. And that's going to if nothing else give you time to settle down a little bit. Wow. These skills are important because they because we can we remember them when it's hard to remember things. I mean, this is so valuable. It's valuable in a lot of contexts. I mean, for myself personally, I could think of relationships, you know, marriages and sales, negotiating, podcasts, public speaking. I mean, there's a lot of different areas where just knowing this stuff at a deeper level is really important. So can I ask you a question? Sure. Okay, so you've been doing this podcast for nine years. Yeah. And and you've you've I assume in in your life, I know you've had some conversations that have gone well and some conversations that have gone less well and what do you feel like, how are you a different communicator today than you were nine years ago? I think I am more of a, a blank slate seemed like the, the wrong word to use, but I, I am more likely to not have any opinion when I'm talking to somebody. So I'm very, mm -hmm. and maybe a way to say it is non-judgmental, but it's not even non-judgmental. I have no reason to judge because I go into a conversation with no opinion. So I'm not going to judge if they have a different opinion from me. And I think that, and what I fall back on is curiosity. So like what, and I feel the curiosity in my body. And so I think those two things, completely unopinionated, so I'm able to absorb the other person's and really listen to the other person's opinions. And the other thing is, uh, just insanely curious. Yeah. Uh, so, and and I allow my body to tell me, interrupt here because you have a question. Right. It, and what I love about that, it, I'll loop for understanding. <laughs> what I hear you saying, and tell me if I'm getting this wrong, is you've learned to be more in the moment. Like rather than you've learned to listen, and the goal has for you has become understanding what the other person is trying to tell you more than trying to figure out who's right or wrong or what the greater truth is, but rather 
hearing what they're saying and listening more closely and being curious to really understand them. Is that right? Right, which, which by the way, might not be the best podcasting strategy because very successful podcasts are often very opinionated. And, yeah. uh, you know, and, and I had, you know, so Mehdi Hassan, who, who had a, an MSNB show, MSNBC show, he came on the podcast when, when his book came out and he, he said, there's no way you're neutral on all of these issues. And maybe he's correct, but at that moment, I was really neutral on all yeah. on every issue out there. And no, he refused I, I, to believe me. I believe you. I believe you. I think that like when you're curious and when you're when your goal is to understand, it's often easy to set our own opinions aside in a very genuine way. And and you're right. Maybe, maybe like some podcasters do really well, like just by kind of bloviating. But I would say even even if it's not great for podcasts, and I actually think it is, even if it's not great for podcasts, it's good for conversations, right? Like I think, do you think you're a better communicator today than you were nine years ago? Oh yeah, absolutely. And part of it is a function of age, I think, because you do kind of learn through experience. But part of it, part of it is because I've dealt with look, I've let's just take politics as an example. I've had on Republican presidential candidates, Democrat presidential candidates, uh, independents. I've had people from every side of the political spectrum. And I will, I will guess that every guest I've had probably thinks I think exactly like they do. <laughs> or at least that you're interested in understanding how they think, right? Yeah. Like, like right. I don't think you, I don't think you agree with everything. I, I, I don't even know if you agree with that, but like, I know that you want to understand what I'm telling you. And like, that's what feels good. Like our yeah. brains actually evolved to, to really feel a lot of pleasure from being understood. I mean, I always use as an example, I, I've had the same business partner since about 1999. Like, so what is that now? Almost 25 years. And he is pro-life, which he'd be happy to admit in public, and I'm pro-choice. And usually the two don't mix very well. Yeah. And uh, uh, and we've talked about these this issue many times, but I would say in a weird way, we've never had an argument about that issue. We just we were able to talk about it and and then move on. And do you think when you talk about abortion with him, are you trying to convince him to change his mind? No, and nor yeah. is he really trying. Look, I've had girlfriends in that time who have had an abortion, and he has not judged me, or maybe he judges them internally in his mind. I don't know, but. Um, uh, we've we've never really had any kind of fight over it or anything, and 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 my guess is like at the core of that, and and again, tell me if I'm getting this wrong, is that you guys have a lot of respect for each other. Like even yeah, the truth of the matter is, no two people agree on everything, right? My wife and I, like she's a biologist. I don't really like nature that much, to be honest with you. Like, like, yeah, it's boring. Like, yeah, I get, I get, like, I'd rather, like, you know, I'd rather go see a movie and eat some Chinese food than go for a hike in the redwoods. But like, that doesn't mean that we that we can't connect with each other. It doesn't mean that we don't have a great marriage. In but many that ways, is, that is though part of a successful marriage, which is that you could have different interests but still be recreational companions for each other. Absolutely. And and know how to talk to each other. So when she comes home and she tells me about something she saw in nature, like we can have a conversation about it where I I love her passion and I'm and I'm so interested in her passion because she's passionate about it. Whereas I would have seen the same thing and been like, whatever, it's another fish. I don't care. 
<laughs> right. Yeah, no, definitely. Like, I'm interested in, for instance, chess. My wife could have zero interest in that. <laughs> like, doesn't know the rules, doesn't care, doesn't want to hear about, oh my gosh, this Ding Loren just won the world championship. She doesn't care, but she, we, we find common ground. Like, uh, competitiveness, she understands and what makes yeah. a good competitor and what doesn't. So you always find, can find common ground. Absolutely. Absolutely. You find that place where you can match each other, and that's where the connection starts from. Well, Charles, when does the book come out? Does so the book comes out? out? No, February 20th. comes out February 20th. Um, people can pre-order now. So if it's called Super Communicators. They can find it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, anywhere you go, Audible. Um, and, and also, if you just if people want to reach out to me, and I'd love to hear from people, if my email address is charles at charlesduhig.com. Or if you just Google me, you'll find my email address on my website. And I actually read and reply to every reader email that I get. So wow, that's impressive. It, it might take a, it might take a week or two, but like I, I you'll hear back from me um, again because I think communication is important, right? Like this is this is this is real stuff. This, or, this all right, then let me add this. This brings up a question. This is where I am the, the worst at communicating. Okay. Is I do not, I'm incapable of getting back to people. So like someone writes me, a, and usually the nicer someone communicates with me, but this is over emails or texts yeah. or online or whatever. Usually the nicer someone communicates with me, I'm like, I feel like I have to really compose a really right. great response. And, and then two weeks go by and then you're like, okay, yeah. I can't do it. I can't yeah. do it. Something is wrong with me on this. Like I have like a mental problem about responding to people. Okay, so here's the thing I would say. As long as you and other people have agreed on that basic rule, then it's fine, right? If I if I email you, if we if we're friends, I have a friend who is terrible at email. So I'll email him and I'll be like, "Hey, you want to have a want to have dinner?" And half the time he literally won't even reply, right? And like and like it's easy for me to think like, "Oh, he doesn't actually like me." But no, he actually likes me. I just understand the rules are he's terrible at email. Like he just does, he is just bad at email. And that's okay. I, 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 I accept that and I acknowledge that. I think the key is it's not that one thing is good and one thing is bad. It's who you are, but it's about communicating to the other person who you are, right? So that if I send you an email and I never hear back from you, I might think it's because you, you're pissed at me or something like that. But if, if everyone knows, if you tell people, Please send me an email. I'm bad. I'm bad at responding, but that doesn't mean like I didn't appreciate it. Versus me going on a podcast and saying, "If you email me, I will email you back." Now we know the rules. Yeah, I wonder how I can explain to people the rules in advance, though. <laughs> oh, so actually, I think a lot of people have autoresponders. Like, I'll send an email to someone and I'll get something back that says, "Hey, thank you for your note. I only check email between you know three o'clock and five o'clock. So if you don't hear back from me, it, it's because I haven't gotten a chance to see your email. If it's really important, send me another email. Right? They tell you the instructions on how to communicate with them, and at that point, you know. I see. That's a good idea. Maybe I should do that. I always think I I can do better, but maybe I should need just do the autoresponder, explain the rules, <laughs> and then communicate when I can. I'm afraid it'll make me even worse, though. Like, oh, I sent an autoresponse. That's good enough. <laughs> so, Well, and, and the truth is, not everything deserves a conversation, right? Yeah. Like, sometimes people send you an email, and they're like, hey, I love your show, and they don't want anything in return. They just want to, know, they just want to let you know that they heard they loved your show. And I love those emails. For anybody in my audience, I love those emails, <laughs> but I'm not good at responding to them. So Charles Duhigg, the book is Super Communicators. I love this 
topic and conversation. I probably have a good collection of books about communication and particularly as regards persuasion and, and things like that and negotiation, but you cover all aspects of communication. What a great book. I We didn't even talk stories about the the, the Big Bang Theory, how that show uh, became such a great show using some of these techniques. And we, and you talk about uh, uh, Netflix's internal culture and, and how they communicate. So many great stories in here. Charles Duhigg, author of also The Power of Habit and I always forget the exact phrasing, but better, faster, smarter, or smarter, yeah. faster, better. And yeah. you, I think you were on for both books, right? We were on yeah. for yeah. yeah. So yeah, it was, I love coming on this show. It's, it's yeah, really we, fun. We have to get you on when you're not, when you don't have a book. Exactly. So, yeah, that'd be fun. <laughs> um, well, thanks so much, Charles. It was good catching up also. Um, and look, great book. February 20th, 2024, Super Communicators.